Welcome to this episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Lukowicz, and joining me today is a political reporter for the Public's Radio here in Rhode Island. It's Ian Donis. Ian, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Ryan. It's great to have you. So uh, let's start with uh, your story. Of course, we're going to jump into the 2022 elections and give some analysis, which I'm really excited for. But for people who don't know you, uh, please introduce yourself and tell everyone about the great work you do over at the Public's Radio. Well, thank you. That's very kind. I had an auspicious introduction to Rhode Island because I started work at the now defunct Providence Phoenix in the spring of 1999, two weeks before the FBI raided City Hall, and that lifted the lid on the what was known as the Plunderdome investigation that eventually landed Buddy Cianci in federal prison. Right. So I, I knew I was in a great place to be a reporter. I'd had a little bit of previous exposure to Rhode Island through a uh, temporary assignment with the Associated Press in the late 80s, but I was commuting from Boston, and I, I didn't really get the full Rhode Island experience. So, mm-hmm. you know, I moved I moved down to Rhode Island in 1999, and I've been here ever since. You know, I got got the wife, got the two dogs, the, the right. you know, the full, the full boat, and, yes. um, and uh, yeah, I've been with the public's, what we now call the public's radio since 2009. Some people might remember the radio station being called WRNI or Rhode Island Public Radio. And uh, we like to keep people on their toes by changing the name every now and then. So uh, we are now known on the, as the Public's Radio. It can be found on the dial at 89.3 FM. We are Rhode Island's NPR member station. And our station highlights a mix of reportage from our own local reporters in Rhode Island and southeastern Massachusetts, as well as stories uh, from from NPR, from elsewhere in the U.S. and from from outside of the U.S. and from other sources like the BBC. And uh, yeah, it's it's you know there was a former pro show reporter Elliot Jaspin who once called being in a uh, once likened being a reporter in a, in Rhode Island being like at a theme park for, for journalists. And I, that's really true. I mean, you know, there's never a shortage of interesting and bizarre stories. So I feel privileged to have an opportunity to uh, report on it and try and shed some light on what is going on. Yeah, and I know uh, you have your own uh, kind of show that I think runs every Friday morning, and it's also available as a podcast for people to check out called Political Roundtable. So talk about a, talk a bit about how that started and, and how things are going, and, and what you know people can learn from that as well. Sure. Thanks for the question. Yeah, when I started at the radio station, there was a segment known as Political Roundtable. It was a roundtable discussion with uh, Maureen Moakley, the URI professor, and Scott McKay. Mm -hmm. Over time, the uh, format has changed a little bit. We started inviting a guest from the world of politics 
And then uh, last year, Scott retired, and uh, we just decided to go in a different direction. So now it's a one-on-one interview where I talk to uh, someone from the world of politics. And, you know, as a podcast podcaster yourself, you probably appreciate, Brian, how, you know, with a one-on-one interview, you can get into some pretty good depth and uh, really sure. focus in, in on a particular individual. I mean, for example, I mean, this week, Alan Fung, the former Cranston mayor who's running for Congress as a Republican in the second district will be my guest. I've had uh, some of the other candidates in that race on. And, you know, I try and get a mix of guests in terms of their partisan uh, view, you know, their, uh, you know, try and get just represent the full circle of Rhode Island political personalities in terms of the guests. So, you know, Mm -hmm. some, um, you know, some people might not uh, like the politics of a particular guest, but, you know, that's, that's really not, uh, you know, something that I take into account. I mean, we, we have an obligation to present, uh, voices from all over the spectrum, from liberal to conservative and in between. And, uh, you know, and I think we do a pretty good job doing that. I mean, and, you know, we know that there are not a lot of Republicans in elected office in Rhode Island. That, you know, they have a, a bare fraction of seats in the legislature. So, but I make an effort to uh, overrepresent Republicans, you know, in, in proportion to their presence in elective office in Rhode Island, just because it's important that people hear different voices and, uh, you know, and have an opportunity to hear what the opposition party has to say, along with the party that is most dominant right now. Yeah, very true. That's a great point. And yeah, it's always good to hear those different perspectives. And and I can second that. Um, Ian Ian truly does have uh, a range of of guests on. So I'm I'm thinking people can just kind of type in, uh, you know, political roundtable in their their little search field on their, you know, devices and, uh, you know, find it on whatever podcast platform you're listening to me on right now. which is which is great. So uh, thank you for for that information. Um, I do want to uh, dive into those races, and I know you know Ian and I and others have been uh, interviewing a lot of these candidates. Uh, but but it's good to kind of take a, a, a you know zoom, zoom out and, and look at a, a big picture uh, view of, of things here. So I, I want to start with the governor's race, um, and just to remind voters, uh, we have you know five. Democrats, uh, Governor McKee, Secretary Gorbea, Helena Folks, Dr. Munoz, and then former Secretary of State uh, Matt Brown. And I should point out, Helena uh, had never held elected office, but was um, the uh, you know big executive over at CVS. So uh, let me take your temperature, kind of as we stand right now on this race, Ian. I know it's a, a loaded question, and we'll probably have you know go back and forth on it a little bit, but. Uh, what are your thoughts on this race as we stand today here on uh, June 1st? Well, one of the interesting things, and I'm probably not the first person to say this or make this observation, is that it seems like a wide open field. Uh, typically, an incumbent has a lot of advantages. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of kind of environmental advantages for Governor McKee. Uh, the state has its best budget outlook. And as long as anyone can remember, you know, it's got this huge surplus of, you know, Mm -hmm. close to $900 million. There's all this federal COVID relief. 
uh, you know, for, you know, there've been a lot of improvements in what's happening with the pandemic, although it's still with us. So sure. on paper, on paper, you would think that Governor McKee might be a shoe in. But on the other hand, uh, you know, according to a recent Channel 12 poll, voters seem somewhat ambivalent about Governor McKee. They, um, and it seems like a wide open field. The Channel 12 okay. poll showed uh, Secretary of State Nellie Gorbea within a striking distance of Governor McKee. And it was a troubling indicator for Governor McKee that his percentage of support in the head-to-head matchup, uh, 25%, was 20 points less than his approval rating. So that's that's never good uh, for a politician when there's that kind of divide between their approval rating and the percentage of voters that say they will vote for a candidate. And um, at the same time, as you say, Helena Folks has a, a background as a prominent executive with CBS, one of the biggest corporations based in Rhode Island. She yeah. is personally very wealthy, so she can sink a lot of money into the race. And she just started advertising very recently. So the question is, how to what extent can she grow her support? And does her support come at the expense of Dan McKee or Nellie Gorbea? I, you know, with all respect to Matt Brown and Luis Daniel Munoz, the Democratic side of the race seems uh, mostly between uh, Governor McKee, Nellie Gorbea, and Helena Folks. I strongly suspect that one of, one of those three will be the primary winner in September and uh, go on to face uh, Republican, uh, probably Ashley Kalis, yeah. in the no- in the November election. There is, I think, there's another uh, more far more obscure Republican running in there. Yeah, Ray Herrera. You know, yeah. Right. But um, no, but I mean, it's it's uh, I think I don't know if it's due to covid or just the volume of news, the war in Ukraine and the fact that, uh, you know, other people are struggling to get by. There's it seems like the public has not really tuned in in a large way yet to the race for governor. Uh, You know, there's always a certain slice of the electorate that is apolitical and does not pay attention until just a couple of weeks before the primary or the general election. But I think we've been through such an unusual time in America in recent years with a lot of different things, including COVID, that, you know, politics uh, has maybe had some trouble competing for, for people's attention. But um, but no, it's interesting. I mean, I think Governor McKee is warming to the challenge a little bit. He, he seems a little feistier and a little more energetic in his public presentation and his public comments. So, you know, he is, uh, you know, he, I'm sure he's going to campaign hard and make a make a real fight for it. But at the same time, uh, Nellie Gorbea strikes many voters as as being very relatable and very amiable. That's kind of one of her chief political attributes. And uh, Helena Folks also comes across very well. I did one of the first interviews with her back in I December. And and I was really struck by her. I mean, she she's a very wealthy person. Um, you know, we're not going to see her in a food stamp line anytime soon. But she comes across <laughs> she comes across as a, a very regular person. She's down to earth, uh, very personable. Uh, you know, she 
she has uh, some, you know, some good elements in her biography that she can share. She was the, you know, she said she got uh, CBS to stop selling tobacco. At the same time, opiates have clearly been in the news and there's some scrutiny right. cast on big retailers like CVS because of the opiate issue. So that might be a line of attack against folks from uh, some of her, her rival candidates. And oh, on the Republic. Yeah, and on the Republican side, Ashley Kalis is um, the you know the leading Republican candidate. Uh, she is so far. She seems to be focusing a lot more on the the what than the how. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. I mean she says you know we need better schools in Rhode Island. We need to retain more businesses. We need to grow more jobs. I think I don't think anyone would uh, reject those kind of goals. But mm. when I asked her, she was a guest on my weekly show a while back, and I, I kind of tried to draw her out a bit on how she, what's the roadmap for achieving some of the goals that she has? How would she get there? And she was a little thin in responding on that. So, you know, perhaps she'll have more answers and, and she has the benefit of not really having a competitive primary. Uh, so, you know, perhaps we'll hear more from that as time goes on, but at this, uh, yeah, I mean, to her credit, I think she also has some personal wealth and she's been probably the most visible can- gubernatorial candidate so far on television with the volume of ads that she's put up there. So Absolutely. she's probably, yeah, she's probably registering in the minds of some voters, uh, even if, even if most voters remain undecided. And that, that was another big takeaway from the Channel 12 poll that the, the largest pool of voters was undecided. So the race is very much up for grabs. Yeah, it is. I think that was, you know, the the biggest takeaway from the poll, arguably, and, and that's what makes the race so interesting and and, and open, frankly, for, uh, you know, most of these candidates to have a path. And you know, there's a a lot to unpack there. A, a very uh, comprehensive, uh, great answer, um, you know, for for the question. But uh, yeah, I I, I think uh, I'm really interested in kind of the you know the the perception of the the TV ads. I mean, Ashley Kalis did go up the earliest and I would say it's probably had them on, you know, the most often, um, you know, as well as, uh, Helena folks just, uh, you know, came out with hers a couple of weeks ago. And then you've got, you know, Sarah Morgenthau, um, in the congressional race who has one, I haven't seen it too often. And then I think Deborah Giro has a 32nd one as well. I, I, Apparently, it's on uh, WPRO radio. I haven't seen it on TV, but, you know, you wonder how how much do these ads make a difference? And, uh, you know, it, you know, it, of course, there's I don't want to lament on, you know, the whole money thing. And obviously, some candidates are richer than others. But um, I'm just curious what your take is on candidates starting ads this early. I know some have said, you know, good to do it now before the summer. But uh, you're right. Uh, trying to catch voters attention is is more difficult than ever right now. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people who are, you know, um, they have a lot going on in their lives. They're taking care of their kids. They're working their jobs. They're, you know, trying to earn a living. There, There's a lot to do. And not everyone has the time or the interest to be a, a super interested student of politics. I mean, sometimes for people who pay close attention like you or me, it's sometimes easy to forget that, you know, we could walk out and 
Kennedy Plaza or any other part of Rhode Island. And, you know, if we ask 10 people who the Speaker of the House in Rhode Island is, um, you know, maybe if we're lucky, uh, two people could tell us. Um, sure. There are a lot of there are a lot of people who just don't pay attention. And because of that and because of how television is kind of the, the dominant uh, medium of our uh, of our time, uh, a lot of people just get to know a little bit about candidates through television ads. And that kind of feeds into this cycle of how money is so important in political campaigns. You know, people really might you know, people might not like that, but, um, you know, a series of court decisions have, have upheld the right of candidates to, uh, to use money and to raise a lot of money for campaigns. So, you know, that's part of the challenge for someone like Luis Daniel Munoz. He's, you know, he's very intelligent. He's very thoughtful. He's very sincere in his interest in public service. And, um, you know, at the same time, he ran uh, four years ago and got uh, 1% of the vote. And I, it's, you know, I mean, he's trying to ignite a grassroots grassroots movement and, uh, you know, I expect he'll, yeah, it is hard. It's, it's hard. You know, it takes time. It takes effort. It takes money. And, um, and it's just very challenging. And, you know, that's why I think traditionally you've seen members, if you look at Rodan's congressional delegation, um, Three of them are prior members of the state legislature, uh, Representatives Langevin, uh, Cicilline, and uh, Senator Reed, and uh, Senator and Senator Whitehouse uh, worked in a variety of roles. You know, he started out in the Sunland administration. He was later uh, Rhode Island's top federal prosecutor, and then its top state prosecutor. So, you know, there's traditionally been kind of a series of steps as politicians try and work their way up the ladder, and that can help them to build uh, their name recognition, their familiarity, build a, a, a portfolio based on issues that they support, and build some of the money that uh, can be very helpful in political campaigns. So that's, you know, that's uh, we've seen a number of of candidates over the years try and jump into Congress or the governor's office without holding uh, an earlier office. And that can be a real challenge. Yeah, it can. I I think that the name recognition thing, the money, um, the the kind of lack of other connections, you're, you're absolutely right. There are plenty of reasons why um, you know, it's it's not impossible. I mean, you know, you look at Trump, but it's certainly, uh, you know, on, on the national level, but uh, it, it can be uh, very difficult for sure. Um, let's go to the lieutenant governor's race. I, I don't mean to go too quickly, but uh, there there's a lot to cover here. Uh, you know, you get Sabina Matos. She's the incumbent. Uh, well, I guess, you know, she, she was appointed, but uh, she wants another full term and uh, hopes to be elected. And then you've got uh, State Senator Cynthia Mendez, who is along with Matt Brown, sort of more to the left, and uh, as well as State Representative Deb Ruggiero, uh, who also has the, the support of Speaker Joe Shikarchi and a lot of others. So um, I'm just really cu- curious, and what fascinates me is kind of the um, the the disagreements, I guess, in, in who could be the next LG within kind of the Democratic 
leadership because we saw the Senate president and the governor obviously at uh, Lieutenant Governor Matos's kickoff event. But I think Deborah Giro does have a lot of support in the House and I, I think we'll give uh, Matos a bit of a, a run for her money. But uh, l- let me know what your take is on that race, and particularly Deborah Giro in general, because I think she's, she's, regardless of her policy, a fascinating candidate. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that so many people are interested in a role about which I think Rhode Islanders have a lot of ambivalence, if not cynicism. There's one other candidate, former state representative Larry yes, Valencia. He wants to get rid of the, the office, yeah. Right, and that's a nod to the, uh, the late Robert Moose Healy, who uh, thought oh, the, yes. the office of lieutenant governor was a big waste of time. But, um, you know, certainly Dan McKee is living every lieutenant governor's dream when he uh, since he he got to be the top dog governor through uh, his place as the state's lieutenant governor. Um, I think there is something similar to the lieutenant governor's race as with the governor's race. I think there's a lot of undecided um Sabina Matos, Cynthia Mendez, and Deborah Giro were close, uh, grouped pretty closely together in the Channel 12 poll. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Matos had a little bit of a lead, but um, yet again, there was a big number of undecideds. And uh, Deborah Giro, uh, her, I've seen her TV ad. I mean, it seems vaguely reminiscent of a TV ad that Nellie Gorbea had in the 2014 cycle playing on a projection of amiability and likability and, and a little yeah. bit on, you know, does anyone know what the lieutenant governor does or right. what, who, or who the lieutenant governor is? Um, you know, Sabina Matos has been very visible with Governor McKee. They are typically together at events and have traveled together around the state to various bill signings and ribbon cuttings and, and what have you. But um, her fortunes may rise or fall depending on what happens with Governor McKee. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we shall we shall see how that sugars off. Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting. You know, we've got this kind of new thing with, uh, you know, I mean, the governor and lieutenant governor are, of course, you know, di- different uh, lines on the ballot. You vote for them individually. So, you know, hypothetically, you know, you could have McKee and Mendez together or, you know, Brown and Matos, whatever the case may be. Um, but I, but I think this this concept of, of running as a ticket is is a little bit new. Obviously, McKee Matos, along with Brown and Mendez, have really embraced that. Um, but I don't know if it helps them or it hurts them because I think uh, you know one impacts the other, right? And they they kind of have to be aligned on everything. And I think Sabina Matos, you're absolutely right that her success is really going to be about. The governors and, you know, what happens with this ILO contract that's now being investigated by the FBI and, um, you know, is, is he going to do something, you know, memorable such as, uh, you know, lowering the sales tax? I know he, you know, referenced that in a, a, a forum recently and, um, you know, he's got this new thing as of this week with school safety, which seems interesting. So um, wh- what is your take on kind of the, the relationships between some of these, you know, governor and lieutenant governor lieutenant gubernatorial candidates right um well i mean you couldn't find a sharper contrast between the kind of relationship that former governor gina raimondo had with dan mckee when he was lieutenant governor and uh you know she just seemed completely disinterested in talking with him or having 
the barest modicum of a political relationship. It was funny because I was part of the press pool when Vice President Harris came to Rhode Island last year and uh, got former Governor Raimondo, now you Commerce Secretary, and Governor McKee were talking on the tarmac at Green Airport as if they were old friends. And I <laughs> just had to laugh a little bit um, inside due to the, you know, the, the distance or coolness of their previous relationship. But, um, you know, Governor McKee has treated uh, Lieutenant Governor Matos as a partner. And certainly she, you know, she uh, broke a certain kind of ceiling as the first Latina lieutenant governor in Rhode Island. Uh, you know, she has a long history in Providence politics as a former city councilor and former city council president. And, um, yeah, I think it's going to be it's going to get pretty intense before it's all over. I mean, I think uh, I'm glad you mentioned the Illo Group investigation because, you know, Governor McKee likes to say it's much ado about nothing. But at the same time, uh, the headlines on this story are not flattering to him, and I'm certain his opponents will are likely to make more attacks on this as we get closer to election day. On the other hand, as you say, uh, Governor McKee is there's a large surplus in the state, so there could be some sort of tax relief. I think uh, you know it's not uncommon for elected officials, whether it's the governor or or the House Speaker or the Senate President, to try and shape the budget to their political advantage and by that i mean i'm by that i mean doing things that voters like uh obviously this is an an election year for state lawmakers we've seen progressives trying to make more inroads in the general assembly and the more kind of establishment democrats trying to resist those changes so that's something to keep in mind as we watch the uh the reshaping of the uh the budget from the house of representatives which should be out uh if not this week probably next week yeah a a lot of interesting uh points there and you're right the, the budget's a big thing and we'll see uh what gets in what doesn't i know the governor has been uh you know kind of kind of talking about it a lot and uh, really, really refers to it quite often, especially in the forums. Um, and I, I have to ask, uh, just a, a little bit of a, a break from politics here. Um, can we expect any debates for any of these races from the public's radio? Any, you know, collaboration with the pro Joe or anything? Should I be marking my calendar? <laughs> Great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, in a previous election cycle, we did partner with the pro Joe to do a. Uh, we did a U.S. Senate debate. I, I I, that must have been, yeah. And um, I, we did another debate. So uh, that is certainly possible. We haven't firmed up plans about that as of yet. Uh, but I expect you will see some more debates from different kinds of media. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't uh, rule out the possibility of even, you know, now that I do my weekly interview show, Political Roundtable, as a one-on-one, it's a 14-minute segment. Um, you know, I'm going to consider having some, if there's a two-person primary or general election race for some key legislative seats, I might oh, yeah. have uh, those two candidates in as a way of um, of uh, offering listeners and, and readers some more information on those races. 
That's great. Yeah. Uh, let, let's talk about kind of the legislature overall. Uh, obviously, we'll get to the second congressional district and Providence mayor a little bit. I know I know some of these are, are very local, really only um, appeals to the districts. But uh, in your opinion, are there any that voters uh, should be, you know, if, if you know you live in this town, you should be paying attention to, to this because it's a, a pri- you know, a primary or, or even a, a general election challenge. So uh I don't know if you want to just, you know, go through like your, your top three most interesting or, um, you know, I, I don't really know, but uh, let me know your thoughts on, on kind of the, the uh, particular races and opponents that are popping up in general. The filing deadline for candidates is later this month. So yeah, the, the, f- the field of legislative races hasn't really gelled yet. And, uh, you know, some candidates have made announcements and some incumbents have uh, announced that they're seeking re-election. One, uh, you know, one uh, has announced that he's not seeking re-election. But I think I can tell you that one race to watch is the state Senate seat held by Sam Bell, a senator from Providence. Uh, You know, Sam is a very impassioned progressive and uh, he's been a very outspoken critic of the Senate leadership since he first won election a couple of years ago. And it was interesting because, you know, politics is called the art of compromise. And Bell was very sharp in his criticism of leadership after getting elected. And he was essentially the only or, you know, maybe one of one or one of two senators who is very critical of the leadership of his own party. So you wondered, you know, was he really going to be able to pass any bills or get anything done? But over time, you know, we saw in the 2020 election cycle, more progressives won election to the state Senate. It's the smaller of Rhode Island's two legislative chambers with 38 members uh, rather than the 75 in the Senate, uh, in the House, excuse me, 38 in the Senate, 75 in the House. So it's easier for a group to try and, you know, make some le- uh, change via leverage. So, you know, now Sam Bell is facing a challenge from Providence City Councilor David Salvatore. Salvatore cannot run for re-election as a city councilor due to term limits. And, you know, he's more a little more of a uh, centrist kind of Democrat, whereas Bell is more of an outspoken progressive. So that that'll be an interesting race. Uh, it's my understanding that part of Salvatore's district got redistricted into Bell's Senate district. So, you know, Salvatore, that would seem to give Salvatore a fighting chance at least, but how that race will uh, result is is to be determined by the voters. Yeah, very good point. That's one of the, the cases where a, a progressive is actually getting a challenge from a more moderate. doesn't seem like that's happening too often. And you're right that the progressives through the co-op led by Matt Brown and, and Cynthia Mendez and others, uh, you know, the, the, I mean, I think they're doing a good job getting candidates um and running them against, you know, mostly conservatives, um, which which I think is interesting. And you're right that, you know, you now you have uh, Tierra Mac and, and, you know, uh, outgoing, I guess, Senator Mendez and um, a a few others who are now up there um, to to make a, you know, a notable difference. And I think they've moved the Senate uh, further to the left uh, because they put that pressure on uh, leadership, particularly, you know, President Ruggiero. So, uh, it's it's interesting stuff for sure. Uh, so we'll we'll see if, how that goes. Uh, what do you want to say? If, 
Yeah, if I could mention one other legislative race that bears watching, um, State Representative Anastasia Williams from Providence. Uh, She is one of the most longest-serving state representatives. She was part of a big incoming class in 1992 at the state credit union crisis. And uh, she's a very colorful personality. She's fond of giving uh, speeches that are very unique to her on the House floor. And uh, she is a an interesting person, and she faces a challenge from a progressive advocate named Enrique Sanchez, who's a teacher. And I think, you know, anytime you have an incumbent who's been in for for decades and decades, you wonder, like, you know, do they have the same power among their constituents to win another term. Uh, you know, maybe they are there because their constituents really love them or, you know, it is, or are the voters seeking a change? So that that's another race that bears watching. Yeah, I, I guess I would say, I think those are, those are two really good ones. Uh, I think the one that's interesting uh, is state representative Charlene Lima has a, a challenge. She's also the deputy speaker um, in, in, uh, you know, part of, Providence and Cranston. Um, I can't remember the woman's name, but if again, if you live there, it's something you want to pay attention to. And then um, there's one other one. Oh, I think uh, East Greenwich, you have Representative uh, Caldwell getting challenged by Amanda Blah, who uh, all the credit to her, um, you know, seems to be out there a lot based on uh, what I see on, on so- social media. So you're right that Filing deadlines are, are yet to come. Uh, we, we will see what happens. Um, you know, there are always General Assembly races. I think, uh, you know, there won't be one as big as uh, Nick Mattiello and Barbara Ann Fenton Fung uh, <laughs> two years ago. That was uh, really something um, and got the attention of the whole state. But uh, I guess we'll see where we go from here. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and you're right to mention that uh, race, uh, the challenge to uh, represent Caldwell. That's certainly another one to watch. It is. Uh, let's talk about the 2nd Congressional District. Obviously, uh, big news in January when Congressman Langevin, uh, you know, announced he was not running again. And it's, uh, you know, things have gone a little crazy. Seth Magaziner, who was uh, a gubernatorial candidate, has switched into the CD2 race, as well as, um, you know, uh, Sarah Morgenthau, Joy Fox, David Siegel, Cameron Moklin, and Omar Ba. I don't think I forgot anyone on the Democratic side. And then Republicans Alan Fung and Bob Lancia have a primary as well. I think Magaziner and Fung are really the front runners. The more interesting thing is the general election, in my opinion. But Ian, uh, give me your uh, 360 view on this. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this race is going to attract national attention because, you know, Republicans have faced a real uphill road in trying to win elections in Rhode Island. But, um, you know, Democrats are seen as vulnerable this year due to, you know, I mean, midterms are always tough for the party that holds the White House. Then you add to it that people are cranky about COVID and inflation 
and various other issues. So, you know, I think um, this is seen as a competitive race. I think uh, most analysts still give an edge to Democrats. Uh, The Washington periodical roll call recently changed its um, prediction or its evaluation from solidly Democratic to likely Democratic. But, you know, this is why elections are held. I mean, you know, if hypothetically, the Democrat is Seth Magaziner and the Republican is Alan Fung. We don't know precisely how that race is going to play out. I mean, we do know some elements of it. Magaziner will harp on the fact that Fung's first vote in Congress would be for Kevin McCarthy. And, you know, Fung is going to... And and Fung is going to blame Democrats for inflation and and uh, you know the bad exit from Afghanistan and things like that. Um, so, but uh, you know, uh, again, there are a number of Democrats, as you said, running in the primary. You know, we can't rule out uh, the possibility of an upset. And, uh, you know, you have Sarah Morgenthau, who's got considerable money. David Siegel, who's got a strong base of progressive uh, voters. Joy Fox, who is, uh, you know, fairly well known in Rhode Island and who's been really working to do the grassroots thing and get out and and meet people. Uh, You know, it's interesting. Omar Ba, I... uh, interviewed him for a story on the influence of money in elections. He has a really compelling personal story. He's a a political refugee from the Gambia where he was tortured for being an investigative reporter and reporting on government abuses. He wound up in Rhode Rhode Island not knowing a soul here. You know, he he, uh, wound up getting like five degrees, buying a house, starting a nonprofit that helps other refugees just a really uh, super compelling personal story and and a very nice guy to boot. And, uh, but at the same time, he faces the challenge of any underfunded candidate in that he does not have much money in his campaign account. So it's difficult for him to build his name recognition and get his, his name out and get uh, known on a platform as well as some of his better known democratic rivals. So, I, you know, I covered the 2006 Senate race when uh, uh, Sheldon Whitehouse uh, beat Lincoln Chafee. At the time, Lincoln Chafee was an incumbent in the U.S. Senate. Lincoln, it might be hard for some people to remember, given how Chafee's term as governor went. But at the time, uh, Chafee was still very popular. And despite that, White House was able to beat him with an anti-Republican message. And that was when George W. George W. Bush was very unpopular. And um, so, you know, national politics, um, you know, we'll see how which way national politics cuts. I mean, is it the issue of inflation and the cost of living or the what, you know, what Democrats describe as the bugaboo of GOP control of Congress that uh, is more motivating to voters. I think the biggest thing for this district, and, and you're right across the country, is what issues do people most care about, right? You know, you think, okay, you know, inflation is going on under Biden, you know, you got to blame him. And then uh, obviously those people who are really focused on the economy, uh, are going to vote, you know, Republican. I, I think the Democrats, what helps them 
is abortion, gun control, and you're right, kind of the the reputation of a Republican-led House. So so there, there's a lot to, to watch for that. But I do have one specific question for you. I guess if we were to kind of put these Democratic candidates on levels, right, you have Magaziner, uh, you know, at, at the top, and then I would say in another tier is probably Fox, Morgenthau, and Siegel in no particular order, and then um, Omar Ba and um, uh, Cameron Moquin. On, on that last level, just because of the you know the lack of name recognition, um, and I will be having uh, Moquin and Ba on in these next couple of weeks with Siegel in progress, and the rest I have had on. I'll make that note to the listeners. But is there one candidate who you think is going to give Magaziner or run for his money out of you know if, if if you were to guess, I think it's tough to tell. Uh, I think there there's a potential for for who's going to get that second place. I know you know really the only thing that matters is the winner. But uh, what are your thoughts on that? It's really hard to say. I mean, on I think I think second place, uh, you know, could potentially be Siegel, could potentially be Joy Fox, could potentially be Sarah Morgenthau. Each has certain advantages. Um, you know, I think the Democratic apparatus in the state is firmly behind Magaziner. He's well known for um, two terms as treasurer, and he's got a lot of campaign money at his disposal. Um, you know, it's a big lift for any of the other Democrats to surpass him in the primary. But, you know, um, we, you never, you, you, that's why elections are held. You know, voters get their say, and you can't completely predict how things are going to turn out. Um, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I think. Siegel ran in CD1 back in 2010. Yep. He has more fundraising at his disposal now. He co-founded a activist group that has, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of members. So that's a base of donors that he can potentially draw upon. Uh, you know, Morgenthau has some personal resources. As I said, uh, Joy Fox has been working a lot to do the retail politics thing, meeting people, getting her name out, you know, making the case for a Democratic woman in CD2. You know, a Democratic woman has never held that seat, and half the population or thereabouts is women. So, uh, you know, that, you know, there's a question of whether that argument will prove persuasive. Uh, So it's really hard to say. Yeah, that, that's an interesting one for sure. I, I didn't think you'd give me a definitive answer, but I was uh, kind of curious. And I, I yeah, I, I think it's kind of anyone's uh, game right now for to see, you know, uh, who, is, is anyone really going to challenge Magaziner? Uh, you know, I, I on what and, and and if so, on what issue? So uh, we'll see. I always like to ask my guests uh, this question. I, I usually ask it to the elected officials, and I'll put it out to you as well. Um, what is your favorite Rhode Island restaurant, if you had to pick one? Or you can list a f- off a few if that's too difficult. I'll list a couple. Um, my wife and I and our two dogs live over here in East Providence, and I love uh, one of our hometown restaurants, Avenue N. Oh, and, I'm, and the owners of Avenue N are opening a uh, southern food restaurant uh, called uh, I think it's Honeybird, uh, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm a big fan of Dirk's Barbecue in Providence and uh, also the Matunic Oyster Bar in South Kingstown uh, oh, does yeah. a, a great job, and it's a really lovely place to visit. Yeah, uh, I live here in North Kingstown, so we're, we're a little bit closer to that one. It must be a bit of a drive for you, but 
uh, certainly worth it. Um, only a, a few more questions here, or, or I guess I should say a few more races to get into. Uh, Providence Mayor, um, this one, I've interviewed all of the candidates. Um, it is notable this week to mention that Michael Solomon did drop out and endorsed Brett Smiley, which is pretty ironic considering what happened eight years ago. Um, as, as uh, you know, the kind of the opposite happened. Solomon and Smiley were not on the same page. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I've interviewed uh, Smiley, Cuervo, LaFortune um, on this podcast uh, a couple months back. And, um, you know, I, I think Smiley's probably the front runner by a little bit right now, but there's no doubt Cuervo and, and LaFortune have uh, their bases of support as well. So uh, g- give me your thoughts on this race. Yeah, we haven't seen any public polling data on it, so it's hard to know how the three Democrats line up in terms of their public support. Um, Yeah, and I mean, Smiley, you know, he ran for mayor in 2014. Uh, This is the only office he has ever ever run for. You know, it's interesting, Ryan, I have to tell you, one thing that's interesting about this race is how all all the candidates have gotten a lot better at talking at the longer the race goes on. You know, it's sure. kind of this, this race has been developing for a while. So it's kind of like spring training for the three Democrats for a while. And I, you know, I was doing interviews with them last year and, you know, their first go around might've been uh, not as great, but I've interviewed them all more recently and they have tuned up their messages and turned up their, their talking game. And, you know, I mean, with Providence, it's it's a great city. It's Rodin's capital city. At the same at the same time, many of the challenges are very familiar from the time when Buddy Cianci was mayor. There's the underfunded pension, the underperforming schools, a lack of sufficient tax revenue. And if it was easy, if it was easy to make improvements, it would have already happened. And you know, so the question that voters have to decide is which of these three has the the best uh, skill set and aptitude and, and motivation to try and make a positive difference in the future of the city. Um, you know, I think like any race, each of the candidates has certain attributes and uh, debits, but, but um, you know, it's good that the voters have this choice and, and sure. uh, yeah. And, you know, this, this is, is going to, this is an, uh, this is another race. It's going to, heat up more as we uh, get into summer. Yeah, you know, some, somebody said to me, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago that they think it's kind of a two-way race between Smiley and Cuervo. I, I you know, I, I don't know how, how true that is. I think it's it's really tough to tell. It's certainly possible, but, you know, I think Nerva LaFortune has a lot of, uh, you know, su- I think GA support. You know, you look at uh, Representative Marcia Ringland vassal as well as uh, Rep Kislak have come up in support of her, but yeah, it's, it's really tough to tell kind of the, the pulse uh, of the race. You know, I, I'm not a, a Providence resident, so, um, you know, I, I don't know a lot of people who are really uh, in tuned or going to be voting in that race. So I get, and, and the other thing is, you know, a lot of, they're all Democrats, of course, some of the messaging is uh, similar. So uh, we'll see what happens. Any final thoughts? Oh, and by the way, before that, uh, key issues, you're right. Uh, I talked a lot about it on my podcast. Um, education, you know, the, the pension stuff, um, housing, 
crime. Uh, I got, I got sick of talking about that by the end of April. I was happy to get back to statewide, but, uh, sorry, any, any last, last thoughts on that? No, I mean, it's just, I, you know, I'm reluctant to handicap it based on the absence of polling data and, you know, we can all cite yeah, me too. Anec- a- anecdotal information, but, um, no, it's, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's heating up and bears watching. Yes, it does. Um, all right, so we are in the last uh, few minutes here. I want to, to to give you the floor, as I do with all of my guests. Um, are there any races we did not mention, or and or what is your message to the people of Rhode Island right now? So, <laughs> well, uh, thank you. It's not often that I'm asked to share my message to the people of Rhode Island, <laughs> but um, but I do. I am proud of my Twitter following. I'm on Twitter You're great at on Ian, Twitter, yeah, Ian Dunn. Thank you. It's um. You know, there's good and bad about Twitter, like any medium, but I have uh, one of the largest followings among reporters in Rhode Island, so I guess I'm doing something uh, that people are interested in. I would say and, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I try, and I try and use it as a way to um, distribute my journalism, and, you know, you can sometimes have fun with it or have a little oh, bit yeah. of humor, and, and sometimes seems like one big town square where uh, we're all talking with one another and, uh, you know, it's just, at the same time, it behooves us to remember that Twitter world is, is not the real world. But but um, thank you, Ryan, for having me on. I mean, I feel privileged to report on Rodan politics. I try and do it in a, a fair way without fear or favor. I try and focus on the public interest. In the last couple of years, I've tried to focus more on investigative reporting and looking to some things that are, you know, a little more hidden from public view. And, uh, you know, it's tough sometimes. Uh, it's tough sometimes in the election year when there's so much political news to pursue that. But I think we're very lucky uh, in Rhode Island with the current media landscape that we have. I mean, there are young people like yourself who are contributing to the dialogue uh, you know, their WPRI, where I have some friends, oh, yeah. does a very ni- nice job. And some of the other TV stations, Channel 10 and Channel 6, have good reporting. And uh, the Globe Rhode Island has been a good thing. And the Journal still has valuable reporting. And, you know, there are other papers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the, the, for sure. sure, the Valley Breeze. So I think there's, I mean, the one loss as the Internet changed the media landscape is there's not the kind of granular focus on communities across Rhode Island that we once had when the bureau, when the journal had bureaus around the state. But I think there are a lot of reporters who are motivated by the public interest who keep their eyes on the most important issues of the day and report on them. So so that's, that's good for the public, public interest. Yes, and and before I let you go, I tell everyone about your column, which I had the honor of being mentioned in, and I read every Friday. Oh, thanks for mentioning that. I, I forgot all about that. I I started about ten years ago writing a Friday column called TGIF. It's my weekly roundup on Rhode Island politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can Google for that and find it on our website. And each week, I include a link where people can sign up for email delivery. And it's a way of, you know, kind of emptying my notebook on some of the more important or undersung elements of the week in Ronan news, tidbits that might not make it for full-blown stories, 
sometimes highlighting work work by other uh, journalists. And uh, yeah, people seem to enjoy it. It's, it's a lot of work. I usually write it all in a couple of hours on Friday, but uh, helps helps me to uh, make sure that Friday goes by quickly. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And I, I think it's, it's great, too, for people who want to be tuned into politics, but maybe just don't have the time to follow the day to day. It's a great, like, you know, five minute read every week of like, hey, you know, here, here's what happened this week, you know. Um, so I, I think that's great. Uh, thank you so much, Ian, for coming on. He is a uh, polit- political reporter for the Publix Radio, of course, covering politics and uh, hosts Political Roundtable as well as the column and does a lot of other great reporting. So uh, with that, um, I will give you a round of applause here. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Ryan, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me and keep up your good work. Thank you. I appreciate it.